I want us to talk about a little bit about what Scroggins talked about last week. Do you guys remember when he said we need to surrender our rights last week? Yeah. It was good, but he's not here this week, so I can kind of undo whatever he's talked about and we can pretty much say whatever we want, right? Yeah. He's not here, so it seems like every time I speak, he's not here, so I don't know. Maybe he trusts me or maybe, maybe he shouldn't trust me, so I've got the mic, so... Um, <laughs> But this semester, we've been talking about dying to our rights and surrendering our rights. And Andrew talked about our dreams or something, Freud or something, right, a couple weeks ago. Um, But today, we're going to continue that trend in a slightly different direction. I want us to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, beginning in chapter 9, verse 9. More than likely, you'll just look up there. Yeah, there it is. Um, Now, this passage comes right after Jesus has healed a paralyzed man, both physically and spiritually. He's forgiven the man's sins, and he's claimed himself to be the Son of God. So the religious leaders of the day are livid. The Pharisees are pissed at Jesus. Can I say that? I guess that's right in here, so. We'll see where we go. Um, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Okay. Matthew is speaking in the third person. He's going to do that a lot. Um, But yes, this is the Matthew who's writing this book. Sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house... This escalates quickly, this friendship. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, so they don't even go to Jesus, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, so Jesus heard them saying that behind his back, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And he quotes scripture back to them in Hosea. It says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. As we begin here, let's turn and pray for a moment for wisdom and understand what Jesus is saying. Lord, we know that there is so much to unpack in your word and that it speaks to us today. It's alive and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, I pray that we can learn something here to apply to our daily life about what it means to follow you and the kind of community that you were creating then and that you're creating now here on this campus. We trust you, Jesus. We're expectant for what you're going to have to say. In your name, amen. Amen. And so this passage is a, it's an early glimpse to Jesus' ministry. He's just starting his ministry, and he's beginning to build his small group. Now, how many of you guys are part of a small group, right? Or a life group, sorry, Nathaniel, a life group, a team group, core group, cell group, whatever you want to call it. Um, but Jesus is building his small group. He's going to Starbucks in the UC in the CAF. He's playing soccer and board games and then whatever girls do or something, arts and crafts, paint nails, Calista said, okay. Um, so Jesus is painting nails with his disciples, apparently. Um, But he's going around, he's starting a movement of people. He's calling it the kingdom of God. And the religious leaders are upset. They're very uncomfortable about Jesus and who he's including in his circle of followers. Who's Jesus hanging out with? It says here, tax collectors and sinners, at least in the words of the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't call them that. The Pharisees are not only offended at who Jesus claims to be, he's claiming to be the son of God, but also offended by the kind of people and the community that he's creating. Jesus says this is the kingdom of God, but he's including all the wrong people. So what this boils down to is the community Jesus is forming around himself just doesn't fit the parameters and the categories, according to the Pharisees, about what it means to be people of God. He's introducing a whole new way of thinking about who's in and who's out and what it means to be a part of his family. Hmm. And this is deeply scandalous to the religious leaders of the day. And understanding this story, I think, is key. And the idea behind it has got me thinking lately, like, what are we doing here? Like, in this room, like, what's this thing? What's Chi Alpha? What, 
What is this community that we're building here? And what does it look like? And not just what we're doing here, obviously, on Thursday nights, but what are we doing on Friday nights, Saturday nights, and all throughout the week? Hmm. So I believe there's a lot for us to unpack and apply from this story. And I believe it's foundational for us to understand what it means to be a community of Christians centered around the person of Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about living in a Christ-centered community. I chose those words carefully. I wanted to make it all rhyme. I wanted to make it all have alliteration. Christ-centered community is pretty pretty good, but um, centered, I don't know. There's nothing I can do with living, okay? But one thing I want us to be aware of is that when we invite people into our community, I want us to make sure we're not only introducing people to the culture of Chi Alpha and the way we do things, but first and foremost, I want us to make sure we are introducing people to Christ himself. That's That's our focus. Not just, oh, we do it this way here, but this is the person of Jesus. He says, if you lift me up, I will draw all people into myself. So that's our goal, to lift up Jesus. So in order to fully understand this, I'm going to look at a concept from math. Now, how many, yeah, exactly, how many people are like, okay, all right, I got a two-minute nap, and like, all right, let's talk about math. Nathaniel's excited, maybe like Richard, Skyler, some... Ian, somewhere. Language of physics, yeah. We're not going to talk about physics, because I don't understand that, um, but basic math, okay? Hang with me for like three minutes, it'll be worth it, I promise. So in math, there are a ton of different ways to categorize numbers. How do you define the identity of a number, the set theory, all these things, Nathaniel's already smoking, he's, he's stoked on this. We've got counting numbers, integers, rational, irrational, even imaginary numbers. Apparently you can make up numbers and they just call it a number and you're, oh, I'm a mathematician, it's imaginary. I don't know. But for a second, we can stop thinking about numbers and think about ourselves and human, as human beings. Like, how do you know who you are? How do you define yourself? Who are you? Who am I? Jean Valjean. Now, that's a deep question, a question many of us prefer to leave unanswered, unaddressed. Who am I? For fear of what it might mean. But another way I think we can get at that answer that's a little less scary is kind of asking the question, like, what group do I belong to? Mm. My tribe, my crew, my squad, you know. How do we define our identity through our relationships with others? So back to math for one minute. One way that they define things in mathematics is by what's called a bounded set. And we've got a picture of it up there. A bounded set, okay. It's pretty clear cut. It's made up of things with a a very clear set of traits and attributes that fit within the boundaries. Okay, you can see right there what's in and what's out pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. Those things inside have a a common set of characteristics and attributes that make them all able to be categorized in, inside the circle there. A personal example we can use is like a family reunion, okay? So let's say say we're hanging out with Grant's family, okay? Um, we're going to have a family reunion, the Cole family reunion. Where are we, are we going to McKinney, Texas? Uh, Jeff and Sharon? Are we hanging out with, playing some card games? And uh... Now, who's invited to Grant Cole's family reunion? Okay, Anybody inside the circle? Anybody who's assigned to, assigned to his family by bloodline, by marriage? Like, There's a, a set of characteristic traits that would apply them and, and allow them to be inside the circle. As cool as I am, as awesome as I am, yeah, yeah. I'm not invited. I'm not going to McKinney, Texas to play and hang out with Jeff and Sharon, right? Maybe. <laughs> Just think about it. Pray about it. Pray about it. But regardless, I'm not going to get invited to the Cole family reunion. Yeah. That's a bounded set of people that I don't belong to, no matter right. how fun I might be at that party. Um, right, right. The defining trait of that set is through family lineage by bloodline by marriage you belong to that set of people the line is very clear about who's in and who's out 
Grant's family's on the inside, and my family is on the outside. All of us are really on the outside there. <laughs> the defining line uh, is made up of a, a static set of characteristics. You're born into it, married into it, or you're, you're not. Right. And now this is often a very accurate description of the kinds of Christian communities that many of us grew up in. Hmm. Now, here's what I mean by that. Many people's allegiance to a church community is simply, oh, I was born into it. My parents were followers of Jesus. Uh, my grandma, she used to go to church or pray, or I went to Sunday school as a kid, or I went to Catholic school and wore the uniform every day of my life. Like, that was how I was defined in my allegiance to that community. Yeah. But how do we, as we grow up, answer that question, who am I? We have to define that for ourselves. We can't simply like rest on what our family or friends do or their walk with God. We have to choose for ourselves. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so many church communities, they focus on a really clear set of boundaries and rules. If you do this and this and this, and you don't do this or this or this, then you're in. You're inside the circle. Then you're part of the community, a part of the family. You get to go to the reunion. You know? Then you're a Christian. If you follow the rules that have been outlined and agreed upon by the community, you've had a, a personal encounter with Jesus, you know when to say amen and lift your hands and worship, you're in. Yeah. Hmm. But if you look at the actual history of the church, it's never been that clear cut. Because hmm. what happens is we tend to add extra rules and requirements that fit the particular culture that we're in. Hmm. We add things that really only apply to our current culture and our day and age. And, and sometimes those things are grounded in the teaching of Jesus and sometimes they're not. Yeah, yeah. right. Sometimes those things that we add to the list and the rules and requirements are become way too important in identifying if we're even a follower of Jesus. Mm. Like, yeah. how do I know if I'm a follower of Jesus? Well, I would never do that thing. <laughs> Is that really the defining character trait of someone who walks with God or not? Mm. We put way too much importance on some of those things. And, and this kind of categorization has a really strong suit of being clear. We know who's in, we know who's out. But I think this way of categorizing things would really bummed Jesus out. Yeah, Because yeah. if you read the stories about him, it doesn't seem like this is the kind of community that he was creating. Yeah. seems like he was gathering people a different way. And so let's look to math one more time. Instead of categorizing things in a bounded set, we'll look at what's called a centered set. Yeah. And this centered set is, is much more interesting. It's defined by having a very clear center with things or people surrounding it at various points, at various differences and, and distances from the center. In our case, the center would be the person of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So how do we find our identity in a centered set? It's not as clear-cut as the other one. In the bounded set, it's a static list of attributes I have or accomplishments I've got or rules that I've followed. But in a centered set, it's actually even more simple. And this is key. The question isn't whether you are in or out. The question is whether you are moving toward the center or away from the center. Wow. That's good. Yeah. It's not whether you're in or out, it's whether you're moving toward the center, the person of Jesus, or away from him. And here's a a real-world example. How many of you guys can play a musical instrument? I'm not going to raise my hand. Uh, uh, How many of you guys would consider yourself to be a musician? Oh, we got like Jonathan and Caleb. We got a couple of hands. Way less hands, okay? Bryson, not even. <laughs> now, we got less people raising our hands. Now, why is that? Where, where's the line? Like, do you have to perform in front of people to be a musician? Do you have to get paid to be a musician? What if you perform in people and you never get paid? Like, you're on a worship team. Like, what if you were really good when you were younger, but you haven't played in years? Or You see, it's a little bit harder to define. But in a centered set, you very simply have to ask one question. Regardless of skill... 
Am I currently moving towards getting better at my instrument or my craft? Or am I neglecting my instrument, moving away from the attention and commitment it takes to get better? Hmm. You can see where we're going, yeah. personal yeah. Jesus. That's good. Yeah. I may have just picked up a guitar for the first time ever, and absolutely nobody would want to even hear me play Smoke on the Water. <laughs> but I'm committed, and, I'm, and if I'm trying, I'm ready to learn more and get better. So in a church community, you can have people who were born into it. They're so raised in church culture and the behaviors and the way you're supposed to live. But in their hearts, they don't actually care about Jesus. Yeah. And they're not even moving towards him at all with any intention or commitment. Hmm. But you also have somebody who's really far from Jesus. And that centered set example, they're like way on the outside of that. They're like far on the edge of that. So far from Jesus. But they might get invited to this community. And something about Jesus attracts them. And they might not be able to tell you the difference between Adam or Moses or Noah at all, but they're ready and they're hungry to learn more about Jesus. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. And there's something going on inside them. Maybe they don't even tell anybody at first, but the more they hear about him, the more they begin to love him. And he's clearly speaking to their heart. It, it, is that person a Christian? You see the complexity here? The strength of the bounded set is it's clear who's in and who's out. It's clean. It's nice. How do you know who's in and who's out? With a centered set. It's a little more messy. The social reality of this is, is messy. But I believe this one, the centered set, is much more closely related to the community Jesus was trying to build. Yeah. 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 Let's look back at that story and dive back into Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at his house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So this should immediately raise some questions for us, like, who is this guy, Matthew? Why, why would Jesus focus in on him and, and specifically ask him to drop everything? That's only actually happened one other time. Jesus does it with the fishermen at the beginning of his ministry. He says, come and follow me, and they do. That's the only other time Jesus does this. So who is this guy? As a tax collector, he would certainly be someone who would be far, far outside the community from the Pharisees' perspective, with their clear-cut, bounded-set community. And even in the centered set example, Matthew would be really far from the center of Jesus. Something is clearly going on inside Matthew's heart. Perhaps he's dissatisfied with his current life conditions. Maybe he has regrets about his life choices. We honestly aren't told. But surely he's heard stories and reports of Jesus so that the moment he has a personal encounter with him, he's so compelled and overwhelmed with emotion that he abandons his post and follows him. So what's going on in his heart? We, we know he was a tax collector. And some of us might understand those implications, but for all of us to, to get a brief rundown, Matthew was a Jewish man who's being paid by the Roman authorities to extort heavy, heavy taxes on his own people so he could get a nice kickback. In terse terms, he's a scumbag. Again, can I say that? Scroggins yeah, isn't here. Scroggins isn't here. He here. Okay. <laughs> Matthew was a scumbag. <laughs> I said it two times. Oh, man. <laughs> so most Jewish people would see Matthew, one of their own tribe, sitting in a Roman tax collector booth. Matthew would represent a perfect example of everything that's wrong with their world. Yeah. Matthew was a puppet of Rome, used to extort his own people. Mm, yeah. Think first century mafia. Mm. He sold out his people for a nice kickback. 
Matthew would see some fishermen, his kinsmen coming up the road and they'd be like, oh, he caught 500 fish today. And he'd get to say, here's what Caesar demands from that catch. And, uh, and there's a service charge for my, uh, for my service. Um, you know when you go to a concert and it's like, oh, my ticket's 80 bucks, Ticketmaster, you click on it. And you go check out and it's like $250 because of service fees. Hmm. Like, oh man, like calling it a service and then charging you triple, like making you sound like you're doing me a favor. Oh, we're just, it's just a service fee. We're serving you right now. <laughs> yeah. So Matthew was basically Ticketmaster, and we're just poor people who want to see Taylor Swift, right? Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. Come on, man. So Matthew, he's rich, he's corrupt. But here's the thing. Do even the Romans like this guy? Not really. He's just a puppet for them. Money talks. Do the Jewish people like him? Certainly not. In fact, the very coins that Matthew would be demanding as tax payment from the Jewish people, they would have an image of a Roman soldier with his boot stomping on a Jewish man. This is heated stuff. He's basically giving them their change back where they see an image of their own people of which he was one of them stomping on them. Have a, have a nice day. Here's your change after he extorts them heavily. Yeah. Hmm. So what Jesus is doing here is not just about religion and spirituality. It's, it's our deep-rooted social, political realities. When Jesus walks right up to the tax collector's booth and he says, follow me. Something's going on inside of Matthew where he's deeply entrenched in this corrupt system, extorting his people, and he may be as far as from Jesus as he possibly can be. But when Jesus moves right towards him and says, follow me, he immediately drops everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Matthew quickly becomes so close and near to Jesus. I mean, the very next verse, he's having Jesus over to his house to hang out and have dinner. And Jesus has hundreds of followers, but he chooses 12 to be nearest to him as a symbol of the restored 12 tribes of Israel. So let's look at Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus lists the 12 disciples. These are guys Jesus is focusing on to build this new kingdom of God thing. Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, the 12 listed, two of them get additional occupational details listed here. Matthew's the tax collector, bad guy. Something's going on in his heart, and he's moving towards Jesus and starting to surrender himself. Then we've got Simon the Zealot. Now, what does that mean? The Zealot, that's his job. Yeah, you can't major in becoming a Zealot, at least not here at ASU. So, like, (laughs) what is a Zealot? It's not a word we even use anymore. If we do use it, we might use it the way that they did, which meant like a religious fanatic. Only in their day, it really meant a religious fanatic with a sword in hand, ready to spill Roman blood. A Jewish zealot in this day and age stayed steadfast to the laws of the Torah, was committed by any means necessary to free the Jewish people from all foreign oppression. So Simon the Zealot would have been quite ready to kill Romans and anyone who allied themselves with Romans. Can we think of anyone in Jesus' close circle in his community who would have allied themselves with the Romans? Our friend Matthew, the tax collector. Yeah. Yeah. So Matthew's life before Jesus was mafia, working with Romans. Simon's life before Jesus was killing Romans and anyone who worked with them. So stop and ask for a second, in Jesus' small group, who would have a really hard time of getting along with one another? <laughs> Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Do you, do you think this was unintentional on Jesus' behalf? Mm, of course not. Nothing that he does is unintentional. So, so what is Jesus doing here? Hmm. 
According to the devout Jews committed to the freedom of their people and devotion to the Torah, who's in that group? Simon. Who's on the outside of that group? Matthew, the traitor. He, he can't be one of us. But do you see how brilliant Jesus is? He picks two people who, according to their own way of organizing identity, their own way of categorizing who's in and who's out of God's covenant family, couldn't be on more opposite ends of that spectrum. Yeah. And Jesus calls them both to closely follow him. Yeah, that's right. Even though Scroggins isn't here, I'm going to quote his favorite author from his favorite book. Okay? <laughs> e. It. Stanley Jones, in his sensational book, Christ of the Indian Road, says it this way. We must call men not to loyalty to a belief, but loyalty to a person. We may be loyal to a belief and be dead spiritually, but we cannot be loyal to this person and be other than alive spiritually. We do not get Jesus from our beliefs. We get our beliefs from Jesus. So good. Yeah, that's good. Oh, man. So that bounded said, it's clean and nice, but it can become legalistic, and we can add on extra things that aren't really a part of the core identity. The centered set is a crystal clear center. Are you moving towards Jesus or away from him? But it does result in social messiness. You see, Jesus is making a very powerful countercultural statement about what it means to be a part of his family, and it gets messy. Jesus redefines what it means to be a part of the family of God. He's redefining what it means to be a part of the family of God. And it doesn't have to do with traits that you're born with, it doesn't have to do with your list of religious accomplishments. How many Bible verses or worship songs you know the words to? It actually doesn't even have to do with how horrible a person you've been in the past. The Bible's filled with examples to support this. All that matters is that right now, in this moment, Jesus offers you the invitation to follow him, to become a part of his family, not because of anything you've done, but because he's just that compelling and loving and worthy. Yeah, that's right. But we still must address address the why. Why follow Jesus? Matthew clearly saw something in Jesus that was worth following. But for us, why follow Jesus? For those of us who consider ourselves Christians, the question can be asked, why am I following Jesus? So let's flip a few scenes ahead to Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus' cousin John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask Jesus some questions. John doesn't get to go in person, not because he was underhanded like the Pharisees, but because John's literally isolated in a Roman prison right now for preaching the message of Jesus. Matthew 11, verse 1. After Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now there's a lot here, but let's take a break in the middle. Right when John asks through his disciples, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Remember John the Baptist? He baptized Jesus. Okay, And he was there when the cloud and the message, and this is my son who I'm well pleased so John was there when that happened. He saw that. But here he's doubting. Here he's not sure. He asks, are you really the one? Even after witnessing that personally. Yeah. Because this is the thing. John is expecting Jesus to do things a certain way. John has given up his life to make a way for the one who is to come. But 
It's led him to rot in a Roman prison while he hears stories of Jesus having dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners. Hmm. Somehow when John hears about what Jesus is doing, it doesn't excite him and convince him Jesus is the Messiah. Instead, he's doubting if Jesus really is the one that he's given up everything for. Hmm. So let's look for a minute as to why John is feeling this way. We don't have this passage up on the screen, but I did this on purpose. I want us to close our eyes for a moment as we let our imaginations picture the scene. Way back in Matthew chapter 3, if you're taking notes, but then close your eyes, so don't. John is preaching about the one who's to come. Let's see. Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12. Don't write it down. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing people, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, you can open your eyes. That's an image of Jesus. That is an image of Jesus that John is preaching about. Winnowing fork in hand, unquenchable fire. A little bit different than yucking it up with tax collectors and sinners at a house party. So you can see the image of the Messiah John has been preaching about. And that's why he's currently in prison. And he hears these reports of Jesus. So, so let's sympathize with John for a minute here. How would we feel if we had such strong, specific expectations of what Jesus would do in our lives when he comes? And instead of meeting those expectations, he does something entirely different, and we end up enslaved in prison. We'd be uh, disappointed, to say the least. I could probably use more colorful adjectives, but uh, I feel like I've already hit my threshold of scrubbing this in here today. So. Yeah. But you see, unmet expectation leads to disappointment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is really, really key. Unmet expectation leads to disappointment. We all have expectations we know we have, but there are all kinds of expectations we only have and we only realize when they're not met. Mm. We have a friend or family member or spouse or, and something they say or do and is like a huge letdown for us and it hurts us and, and they don't really understand why this is so hurtful but it's be, and we don't even really understand but it's because we had this expectation of the way things were going to go and that expectation wasn't met. That expectation gets exposed and hardships or sudden pain or tragedy in our lives can expose these hidden expectations we have. And this is where John is currently at. We can all sympathize. We've all been there. Yeah. We can all understand that that when following Jesus, if our wildest dreams aren't coming true and expectations aren't being met, we can get let down, become disappointed, bitter, angry at Jesus and God. We can begin to doubt if he really is the one worth following, just as John did. So the lesson in all of this is we have to ask ourselves this question. Why am I following Jesus? Why do I do the things I do and who am I doing them for? You've heard it a million times, but it's because it's worth repeating. Why do I do the things I do, and who am I doing them for? What if we follow Jesus and, and hear stories about how he's doing incredible things of the lives of others? Like John heard the words, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, 
Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. And he's sitting in prison. And he's like, man, what about me and my problems? What? Jesus, why won't you solve these things in my life? Am I not important enough for you to help out? Like, even just, like, not in prison would be cool. Like, if you, I, don't, I don't even need food. He was eating wild locusts and honey before, but he's rotting in prison, and he's distraught. This is the honest question of our heart. Do we still follow Jesus even then? Or do we only follow him for what we can get out of him? Before we continue, one thing to note. If we had more time to read on in Matthew 11, we would see Jesus addresses John's doubts in a remarkably kind and compassionate manner. He never blames John for doubting. He never speaks poorly of John. In fact, he pays John the highest compliment and says, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. So now that we've explained how a Christian community should be centered around Jesus and his character, and we've asked ourselves the questions of why we should follow him, I think the next logical explanation is to move towards the question of how. How do we actually follow him? How do we make sure we're centered on Jesus? What's that first step? What's the very first thing that Jesus says when he begins his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent. It's not a fun word. It's it's not going to make the top 10 list of preaching topics for 2023, probably 2024, 2025. But let's look at what it means. To put it simply, to repent is to change the way we think. The Greek word is metanoia. It means to think outside of your mind, to, to think differently. It's to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Using our centered set example, repentance is the first step to begin trending towards the character of Jesus and away from our own selfish hearts. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And one more way to look at it is to say this, that repentance is a call to die. Repentance is a call to die. Like Scroggins said last week, it's a call to die to self. Like Andrew said before, that it's a call to die to our dreams for our life and submit to God's plans for us. It's a call to finally get off the throne of our hearts because we are not worthy for that throne. It's a throne only fit for a king. You want to know why I'm not fit to rule my life? I'm not smart enough. I'm not kind enough. I'm not holy enough. I make up my own moral code that I can't even live by, like, I want others to live by my code of morality when I can't even go a day without breaking my own standards. In the Gospels, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dead of night for fear of being seen by his peers, and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why is he trying to follow Jesus? For what he can get out of it, perhaps. Jesus calmly and quizzically tells him, you must be born again. You must be born again. Being born again implies that a death must come first. We die to our old self before we are born again. You see, repentance is a call to die. Now I want us to focus on our hearts and not our heads for just a minute here. Because I know the Holy Spirit is here and he's tugging our hearts saying, this is something you need to repent of. This is something you need to let go of. But our minds, our intellect, will tell us, no, no, not that thing. You can't give that thing up, it'll, it'll kill you. you, you need it. That's precisely the point. It will kill you if you let it go. And I'm here to tell you and to tell myself that that's exactly what needs to happen. Yeah. We must kill the old self that clings unfittingly to the throne. We must repent and turn from our wicked ways to the one who will clothe us in his righteousness and write on us a new name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see, as we close, we must understand a relationship with Jesus is based on trust. 
He will say things that we like and also things that we don't like. But maybe we just begin by trusting that he is the one who knows what's best, and we don't. Yeah. Maybe we are the ones who have a distorted view of reality and relationships and defining who's in and out. Because Jesus can only do so much for people who don't fully trust him. The Pharisees didn't trust him. He, he couldn't work in their life because their hearts were hard to him. Mm-hmm. For people who haven't yet repented, Jesus can only do so much. We must fully turn toward him, leaving our old selves behind. The band can come back up as we, we get towards the end here. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't solve everyone's problems forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, with his death on the cross, actually joins himself to our tragic fate. He dies alongside us. Yeah. Now, why did he do that? Because this is the story about a God who, who absolutely loves his people and he's so committed to his world and his creation even though we're all compromised by evil. So back to our question of why follow Jesus. If we have no guarantee he's going to solve our problems, why not just do what I want to do? Hmm. Guys, the man we follow was crucified and executed by the Romans. Whatever it's going to mean to follow him, it's not the key to our problems being magically solved. It's just not. You see, there will be moments of following him where we are surprised by joy and, and things are wonderful and we're so grateful And those moments are beautiful and will be cherished. And there will be moments of following Jesus where we can experience intense pain and sorrow. And those can be beautiful too because he is right there with us, never forsaking us, and he fully understands what it means to mourn. That's just how life is in our broken world. But we have no guarantee he's going to prevent any of that from happening. He didn't prevent it from happening to John, and he didn't prevent it from happening to himself. So again, why follow this man? What's, what's the point? And I think the point is this. You show me any religion, any religious world you out there, where at its heart is a God who's so utterly in love and committed to every different type of person, no matter how close they are to the center, how far away they are, that he would do this for them. He would die for them. Jesus has such wisdom and grace and compassion and mercy and love. That is why Matthew was so compelled to get up and follow him if I've learned anything in my years of following Jesus, it's that Jesus becomes real to us personally when we decide to follow him, not just think about him. Jesus becomes real to us personally when we decide to action step, follow him, not just think about him intellectually. Did Jesus somehow abandon John the Baptist in his prison cell? Did, Did Jesus abandon his disciples as they died of violent deaths for preaching his message? Does he abandon people we know who have terrible things happen to them? You'll hear that claim a lot. Why didn't God do anything? Why didn't he step in? How could he allow this suffering? He joined us in death on a cross for our sake. And I don't know exactly why all of your wildest dreams aren't coming true. I don't know exactly why Jesus doesn't solve all of your problems. But I can say with certainty that we can rule out the idea that he doesn't love you and care about you. Because somebody who doesn't love you and care about you would not die for you. So as we close, we must realize Jesus is calling us to the cross. He's calling us to join him in the death of our old self, but also to new resurrection life with him for all eternity. This compels us to put our hope in the person of Jesus and not the story of what we think our life might be if we follow Jesus. There's a huge difference. We're called to Jesus, not our idea of him, our idea of a life with him. 
And that's exciting and it's terrifying at the same time. But I know if I'm in the hands of someone who loves me like he does, I can live my life from a place of peace and trust. And so if you're here tonight and you've never made a step toward following Jesus, or if you have in the past and you realize on that centered set that you're moving away from him lately, come to the altar and repent. We all have things to repent of. Come now. The altars are open. Come and repent. We will pray for you and all of heaven will rejoice when we come and repent before the Lord. Let us all repent of the things we've yet to give to Jesus. Lord, we love you. We trust you. Your Holy Spirit is here. Thank you, Lord. Amen.